0: Praise the Lord. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. We're here to declare His name. We're here to say without any doubt, without any equivocation, and without any hesitation that Jesus Christ is alive and He is the Savior of all mankind. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has defeated hell forever. And logic would say that that news, which is the greatest news that mankind has ever heard, that that news would be praised and accepted by every person who lives. Reasoning, man's logic, he loves to be seen as a logical, intelligent being. Reasoning would say that the news that God would intervene in human history and offer to sacrifice himself so that we could be delivered from the bondage of sin and the sentence of hell, that that would be a message that everybody would embrace. And yet, Jesus Christ this morning is the most debated, most controversial, and in some circles, the most hated figure in all of human history. Everybody knows his name. Everybody has some sort of opinion about him. Most of those opinions are strong. But everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Jesus. I was even in a convenience store last night and I was buying some milk and some half and half and just things that, you know, I didn't feel like running all the way to the grocery store for. And the clerk who was checking me out used Jesus' name several times to express his frustration. Thank you, brother. And it was interesting to me as I walked out a little frustrated that he didn't slander the Dalai Lama. He didn't slander Muhammad. He didn't slander the Pope. He slandered Jesus. Because Jesus is the name that matters. What is it about the name of Jesus? What is it about the figure of Jesus that causes such vehement opposition? And even in some circles, some some violent opposition. What is it about Jesus? And then on the other hand, what is it about him that produces what we just heard? Joy and praise and unmitigated declaration of how great he is. Because those are really the, the polar opposites and there's really not a little middle ground. As we saw Friday night in our study about the people around the cross, those who witnessed the resurrection represent the different reactions to Jesus. They represent the different responses that people have to the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And for each group, the fact that he is alive and the fact that he fulfilled what He said He would do, which is, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. For the people that were there, it was undeniably shocking. Nobody was prepared for it. Nobody was at the tomb waiting. Nobody said, hey, Jesus said on the third day He'd rise again, so we better get down there bright and early because we don't want to miss this as He walks out of the tomb. To everybody, the thought was too outlandish. It was beyond the scope of their understanding. But here it was, the dawn of the first day of the week, and the grave that Joseph of Arimathea had lent to the disciples to put Jesus' body in, which was sealed and which was guarded by Romans, now it stands empty. The guards were gone, which was unthinkable because a Roman soldier never left his post under penalty of death. And the tomb did not have a body. Jesus was not there. Now, whether people saw Jesus walk out of the tomb or not, really doesn't matter, because at that point, everybody in Jerusalem was a witness to his resurrection, because in that moment, the reality of what had happened was irrefutable and indisputable. The one that had died on the cross, the one that had given his life, the one who said, I'm the son of God, I'm the savior who will come to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin, and to deliver you from that sin forever that one who went to the cross was not dead anymore. And that could only mean one thing. That could only mean that he is the Savior. That could only mean that he did defeat sin and death. And that news that God would even be willing, that God would even think for a moment to condescend to us and to forgive us and then to back up that willingness by paying the price through his own sacrifice, that thought is so stunning and so wonderful that even in the interim, the disciples weren't even willing to believe it. So let's look at what happens in the text, because they were told that Jesus is alive, and Jesus was alive, but they didn't know how to react. Let's see here in Luke chapter 24, which will be one of our two texts this morning, what happened as the news came out and how they reacted. Luke 24.1, On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood near them suddenly in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to the apostles as nonsense. And they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. And he saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. The women were the first one there. Godly, faithful, undeterred by the thought of having to try to get that tomb open somehow when the Romans had sealed it and guarded it. But they came carrying spices, hoping that they could anoint the body, hoping there could be a a final interaction with Jesus, but but having no idea what had happened. It's it's hard not to get, uh, it's not hard to get a mental picture of them. I've always had a very clear picture in my head of what this looked like. Somber, heartbroken, trudging along, moving toward the tomb, emotionally devastated at what had happened still reeling, still in shock from from the news of the cross. There had been so much hope and so much certainty that that He was the one, that the words that He had said and the miracles that He had done were really the validation that He was straight from heaven, but, but somehow He had been killed. They had believed He was the Messiah. They believed He was the Savior, the one who was promised by the prophets, who was free from sin, who fulfilled every qualification of the law to deliver us from sin. But now He was in the grave. And there's no indication from the text that even though they had heard him talk about being sacrificed and even though he had said, I'll rise again on the third day, there's, there's no indication in this text that they had any expectation that that would happen. In fact, when they see the tomb empty, they're completely surprised. And Luke uses the word here. It's in, I believe, uh, verse 4. He says, they were perplexed. The word in the Greek means they were at a loss. They were full of doubt. They had no idea which way to turn. What would this mean? What what had happened? They didn't immediately say, oh yeah, that's right. That's what Jesus said a couple nights ago. They just stood there dumbfounded. And it wasn't until they saw the angels standing there asking this question that they get any sense of clarity. Look at the questions that are asked. The questions are very powerful and very pointed. The angels say, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Now, if Jesus is still dead this morning, that statement is a joke. If Jesus is dead this morning, then that is absurd in its premise, and it's absolutely disprovable just by showing his dead body. There have been a lot of men and women throughout history that have been declared to be great or have been called influential. I looked at lists this week of the 50 most influential human beings who have ever lived. Or those who have claimed that they were God, or claimed that they spoke for God, or or could somehow refute God's existence. And just by doing a very simple internet search, I was able to easily find pictures of their graves. Let me show you a couple of them. Some of these were founders of religion, told people to follow them. This is where Buddha is buried. And then the next slide shows where Confucius is buried. And the next slide shows where Muhammad is buried. And then there were others who were political leaders who tried to control the world. The next slide is Caesar's grave. And then we see Marx's grave and Hitler's grave. And then there were other people that were treated like deity. They inspired praise and Worship that bordered on cult like. There's Elvis, and there's Michael Jackson, and there's John Lennon, who said the Beatles are bigger than God Himself, and said that God is in all of us. And then there were some who were brilliant thinkers, like Einstein. And then there was Nietzsche, who famously said, God is dead. The fact is, all of them are dead, all of them have graves. None of them claimed to have the power to defeat sin, and none of them were witnessed as having risen from the grave. You have seen all of their graves, and they're occupied with their bodies, but not Jesus Christ. His grave is empty. And the angels confirmed that to the women, declaring the fact that changed the course of human history. They said it in simple words. He is not here. He is risen. And the women instantly believed and ran back to tell the disciples the good news. But what's interesting is that the disciples not only didn't believe right away, they rejected the possibility. In fact, if you look at verse 11, it says that they saw the women's words as nonsense and wouldn't believe them. Now, in a sense, we can understand that. They would be reticent to get their hopes up. The thought of Jesus rising from the grave was spectacular, but... But what if it was a hoax? What if it was an attempt by the Jews or the Romans to draw them out into the public? Because remember, after Jesus was betrayed, they ran and hid. So what if this was a trap? They were scared maybe that someone might, might try to grab them too. So maybe they should just play it safe. Besides, you know how men think sometimes, The women were just emotionally worked up. They, they wanted so bad for it to be true. And they got down there, and I know something happened. And, you know, guys, let's just humor them for a moment. They said something about angels. I don't, I don't know. Nothing really makes sense. The disciples on that morning are really an interesting case study in themselves. And they serve as a picture of many people in the world this morning who believe in God, listen now, but have not been changed by Jesus Christ. For three years, they walked with him every day. They heard every word he taught. They saw every miracle that he did. They watched him love people. They saw him heal and help people. They, they were called to a new depth of faith. They were called to a complete commitment to the Lord. They were called to deny themselves and follow him. And they had done that. They had left their lives. They had left their homes. They left their vocations. And they had followed him and then had taken all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was betrayed and with ours was crucified. And he told them this. He told them about the crucifixion. He told them about the resurrection. But they were too busy not listening. They had followed him, and they had served him, and they had talked about him. But at the key moment when it was time to live out their faith, they argued about who was the greatest. They ran when Jesus was arrested, and now they hid in a locked room. The reason they didn't believe the women on that morning was that even though they had seen all the evidence firsthand, they had still not fully embraced it by faith. So instead of being ready for him to walk out of the tomb, when the women come back and say, hey, the tomb's empty, they say, that's utter nonsense. We're not going to believe you. You're wrong. You're misguided. You misunderstood. Something happened. You're emotional. Get over it. That's exactly what's happening in the text. And only Peter and John, the two who are closest to him, bother to go to the tomb and then they see it empty and they start to wonder whether it might be true. You know, the disciples are where so many people are spiritually this morning and I have to ask you to examine your heart to find out if it's true of you. Because there are only three responses to Jesus' resurrection. Faith, hesitancy, or denial. And the last two indicate a lack of faith on some level. The disciples clearly believed in Jesus, enough to adapt their lives. But even at the resurrection, their hearts weren't fully convinced that Jesus was really Lord over all things, including life and death. See, the defining test of our faith is whether we are unwaveringly confident in the power and sufficiency of God for all things, including our salvation. To the extent that we have surrendered our lives completely and without recourse to Him. It's not enough to just say, well, I believe in God and Jesus was a great teacher and He may have even been able to back up and, and maybe He was resurrected. That's certainly possible. You're right. There's no grave this morning, but but mm, I, no, that's, that's not it. Faith says, I'm all in. Everything that I have is the Lord's. I believe with all my heart, I will confess it with all that I have. Jesus Christ is alive, and because He's alive, I trust in Him. And because He's alive, and I trust in Him, He will forgive me. Faith doesn't hold back. Faith doesn't say we're hesitant. Faith doesn't say, well, it's preposterous. I don't know what to think. Let me, let me rationalize it a little bit, little bit more. The disciples were hesitant. They didn't respond. They didn't fully believe. And one of Jesus' disciples took it a few steps further. Thomas was not there when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. And he said when they told him the news that they had actually seen him with their own eyes. He said, I'm not going to believe that until I see it. Uh, No. No. You're not going to convince me. I'm going to have to see it with my own eyes. Let's look at what happens here. Take your Bible and turn just for a minute to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Instead of believing the testimony of the men that he had walked with for three years, who had all seen and heard and trusted in Jesus, Thomas, when he gets the news from the other disciples, stubbornly and defiantly says, I will not believe I will not believe unless I have visible verification. I want to see the nail prints. I want to stick my fingers in the wounds. I want to put my hand in His side where the spear went. And that will be the only way that I'll believe. The only way I will trust that this is true is if I am able to prove it to myself. Now, there is is no other conclusion than the fact that Thomas's pride declared that this couldn't possibly be true unless he confirmed it. Look at the text here. Chapter twenty, starting verse twenty-four. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with him when Jesus came, so the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side. Notice the next four words. This is one of his disciples who's walked with him for three years, who has seen every miracle. Look at the next four words. I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. See my hands and reach here your hand and put it in my side and not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. To Thomas, the confirmation could only be tangible. It wasn't enough for him to believe God's word. It wasn't enough for him to believe the witness. Now, the Lord could be justifiably angry at that demand. He could walk up to Thomas and say, How dare you? You're my disciple. You've seen everything I've ever done. You've seen me raise people from the dead. How dare you say that you need proof? How dare you say that you will not believe unless you see? Jesus had every right to do that. Thomas had been there at the feeding of the 5,000. He had... He had seen Jesus calm the storm. He had seen Jesus walk on water. He had seen Jesus heal the leopard. He had seen Jesus take the demons out of the demoniac. He had seen him raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. He had seen him teach about the kingdom of heaven. Unlike most of the other people around Jesus, he had seen eyewitness evidence every step of the way. He had seen tangible evidence every step of the way. He had a lot of nerve and a lot of arrogance to say, I won't believe unless you give me more proof. But that's a picture of the heart of mankind. To resist and deny the facts about Jesus. Now we said what Jesus could have done, but look how he responds. He calls us to believe. He says the real blessing is not when we can see and touch what we believe. That doesn't require true faith. That's just verification. I don't have to believe this pulpit's here because I can touch it. It's right in front of me. I put my hands on it. That requires absolutely no faith whatsoever. But if I can't see it and still believe, that's faith. This is the defining issue with Jesus Christ. Do you believe he is the son of God who intervened in human history to serve as a sacrifice for our sin and for my sin and for your sin to purchase us from bondage, to purchase us from sin and death? to offer us salvation and eternal life. There is no other way to be saved apart from Jesus Christ. We have to say that over and over and over again because the heart of man says, I don't need him. The heart of man says, I can do it myself. But good works will never be enough. Intention is just that. But when we trust in the work of God through Christ on our behalf, seeing how unworthy we are of salvation and how willing God is and how gracious God is to forgive us. When we believe in that, our lives are changed. And it's all based on the fact that Jesus' tomb is empty this morning. Now, the skeptic will say, that's a great story. That, that's, you, you told that well. That, that's good. But you know what? There needs to be proof. Oh, we have the word of the women, and we have some supposed sightings of Jesus in the month and a half after his crucifixion that, that wasn't verified by independent sources, but 500 people said they saw him. And the disciples and, and, and his followers, that's, they, they really, they were clever. They, they carefully created this, this hoax. They perpetuated this hoax. In fact, the skeptic demands validation that Jesus rose again. But as in a court of law, the burden of proof is on the prosecution. All the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus is alive to the point that the skeptic should actually have to produce some very conclusive evidence that he's still dead. That was part of the tactical frustration that those who put him to death had that morning. The Jewish religious leaders who were corrupt who had him sent to be crucified, the soldiers who executed the plan, the ones who guarded his tomb, the frustration for them is no one could ever produce his body. Now just think about what would have happened if they had. Imagine after the the women came back and said, He's alive. And after the disciples got the word, and said, He's alive, and they started to tell other people, imagine if the leaders and the Romans and the Jews had said, whoa, wait a second, time out. We got a body. That would have been the final word. The debate not only would have ended for all of history, but all of eternity. And yet still people want to deny it. They rationalized the theory. Well, Jesus' disciples must have hid the body. But here's the problem the soldiers were member of the members of the roman army which was the most powerful force in the world and if a group of jewish fishermen and tax collectors had overcome them and taken the body it would have made them the laughing stock of the world and the jewish leaders who killed him have every motive to find the body with one corpse they can invalidate Jesus' words and ministry, they can finally get the credibility and the authority and the power over the people that they've always wanted. I'm going to be a little morbid here. All they had to do was produce a body and parade it through the streets. All they had to do was say, Look, here's your great leader. Here's your Messiah. Here's your Savior. Here's your Lord. Here's his dead body. Would have been morbid. Wouldn't have been unusual for the Middle East. And it certainly would have stopped any rumors. And then there's the fact that if the disciples had somehow overpowered the guards and rolled the stone away and stolen the body, then everybody would have been looking for it. So here is the question that that begs. Why is there no historical record anywhere that there was any kind of a search for the body of Jesus? There is not one record, not one word written in all of history, Josephus, anybody else, that there was this massive search all over Israel for the body of Jesus Christ. Once the word came out, it was just damage control. Now, if Jesus was really dead, and the disciples had really somehow stolen the body, don't you think they would have launched a search to end all searches? And then you've got the final factor of the disciples. Ragtag, disorganized, powerless, Scared when Judas comes with the soldiers and betrays Jesus, they they have no answer. They just kind of stand there like we don't know what to do. Peter, in his glory, whips out his sword and strikes off Malchus's ear. But other than that, they ran. And the most loyal disciple, Peter, who had used the sword, follows Jesus from a distance, sits in the courtyard, and when people say, "Hey, aren't you with him?" denies, "Aren't you with him?" Denies again. The third time somebody says it, he curses. I've never seen him before. That's your disciples. That's the guys that are stealing craftily and, and, and with a great plot and plan to overcome the Romans and the Jews to steal the body of Jesus and somehow hide it for all eternity. The evidence for the defense is powerful and conclusive those who are skeptical and doubt the validity of the resurrection have no evidence. The only thing they have is an empty tomb to try to explain away. And they can say that we can't prove that Jesus is alive, but I would say to them, there's actually no proof that he isn't. Show me the evidence. Show me the body. Show me the grave that says Jesus Christ born died. Where is it this morning? I'm not being uh, 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 intolerant. I'm not being hostile. I'm saying, look at the evidence. There is no body. Jesus is alive. Now, when you go back to the start of the study, it's hard to understand why the world doesn't react to that by putting their faith in Christ to deliver them from their sin and forgive them forever. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here and you're still skeptical. It just seems too far-fetched. You understand the thinking here, but, but it's just too much to, to comprehend or to accept that God would come down to live as a human in order to be our sacrifice and redeem us. And for you, maybe this morning, the resurrection is the sticking point. It just just does not seem real. It's too much to accept. Well, even the disciples were hesitant to believe at first. But once they saw that the grave was empty and they saw him alive, and they understood that by rising again, he accomplished once and for all the victory over sin. Once they understood that, their lives were never the same. Without hesitation, without looking back, without any more doubt, without any more argument, it is stunning that all throughout the Gospels, the apostles are distracted and full of doubt and lacking in power, but the moment they see Jesus alive, there is no lack of power ever again. There is no lack of confidence ever again. There's never a moment where they waver and go, is this really real? They only move straight forward without any hesitation. And you know what the other witnesses didn't know what to do? Because they couldn't prove their denials. The Romans paid off their soldiers. Hey, tell everybody that the disciples stole the body. They knew the truth. And you never hear the Romans talk about Jesus again. The Jewish leaders tried to silence the disciples, but they knew that was a losing battle. And the gospel starts to spread throughout the world and people confirm that Jesus is alive. And now 2,000 years later, we're sitting here in Racine, Wisconsin and we're declaring the message of his resurrection hasn't changed one bit. It is still true and it has changed our lives forever. And like those who saw him alive, there may be surprising questioning over why God would love us enough to sacrifice us, why why God would even offer salvation from our sin. And there may be some reasoning and hesitation and doubt. And I'm going to tell you this morning, that comes from fear, and it comes from self, and it comes from a desire to control. It comes from any number of reasons. But the fact is this morning, is that the facts are strong. And they demand a response of faith in Jesus Christ. Partial faith, partial commitment are not why Jesus went to the cross. He said, if you believe in me, give me your life. If you believe in me, move away from self. Deny yourself. Turn from your sin. It's never going to get you anywhere but hell. You believe in me because I'm the Savior. Are you still resisting him this morning? I mean that with all the love in my heart. Are you still resisting him? See, and Paul, I need more proof. I, I just, I need a little bit more so I can believe. And if I just had a little bit more, then I would know for sure. Let me tell you all you need to know. He is not here. He is risen. He is not here. He is risen. The disciples confirmed it. The others couldn't refute it. And we believe it. Do you believe this morning? Do you believe this morning? Is that, is that what your life is about? Or is your life about eh, tomorrow, go to work, do my thing, be with my family, watch a little TV, go to bed. Tuesday, same thing. Not headed toward anything, not hopeful, not confident, not sure what to do with the information, but not ready to give your life. My question would be, what are you waiting for? Jesus is alive. He died for you and he rose again for you to save you. And that brings us the greatest joy that is known to man, the joy of salvation. It can be yours today. 1974 became mine. My life's never been the same. And I've never looked back because the truth is there. Jesus is alive. Let's close our eyes just for a moment. I want to just offer to you the words of Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not die but have everlasting life. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, eternal death. But God gives us the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God says, I'll remember your sins no more. I'll toss them as far as east is from west. They're not held against you anymore. My son took them upon himself. This is the eternal transaction that Jesus Christ offered through his resurrection. If he's dead this morning, we waste our time. We close the doors and go home. But if he's alive, you're called to a decision. Either you deny him and say it's not real, or you receive him. And when you receive him, and when you put your faith in him, God will change your life radically forever. You'll be filled with hope. You'll be filled with confidence. You'll be filled with the assurance of salvation for all eternity. You'll be filled with a new life. You'll be filled with His Spirit. You will never be the same. I'm living testimony of that. You will never be the same. Jesus Christ is alive this morning, and He will be alive for all eternity because He has defeated sin and death. And I want to invite you this morning, between you and the Lord, you're not going to come forward, we're not going to ask you to raise your hand, between you and the Lord, if He has helped you to understand His gospel this morning, I invite you, give your heart to Him. It's very simple. Lord, I confess my sins to You. I am so sorry that I have lived for myself all my life. I receive the gift that You have given me. I trust that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And I put my hope and confidence in you this morning and ask you to change me. In that moment, your eternity is secured. God will change your heart and he will change your life. If you make that decision this morning, I ask you, please, come up here and talk to us afterwards. We'd love to give you some material, help you understand what you've done. And put you on the path of growing in the Lord. Christian, this morning, oh, we should be so full of joy. There's no sorrow anymore. The tomb is empty, Jesus is alive. Lord, we praise you with all that we have this morning for the reality of the resurrection. We praise you for the assurance of salvation that you have provided because Jesus has defeated sin, death, and hell forever. And Lord, I pray that our hearts on this resurrection morning would be bursting forth with joy, praising you, not just today, but for the rest of our lives and for all eternity, that you would get all the glory and the praise for what you've done. Lord, where there are hearts this morning that are hesitant or resistant, I pray you would continue to break through, show them the reality of salvation, Lord, and what a joy it is to know you and to be secure in you. Lord, we love you this morning. We thank you and praise you for what you have done. And we declare that you are Savior and Lord of all for all eternity. We praise you in Jesus' name.